Hello, everybody, and welcome to Season 4 of iWolves with your host, Ian Dunbar, Kelly Dunbar, and me, Jamie Dunbar. And what are we talking about this week, Kelly? This week, we are kind of uh, following up with our last, our last podcast, um, and we're going to talk about the, the not-quite-good-enough dog. Or the difficult-to-place adoption, I guess. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a sad topic, but also I think something that we can ex- we can explore and perhaps even uh, look at you know possible solutions for helping these marginal but relatively normal dogs. So it seems like last week we were talking about um, how to save a shelter dog by saving the puppy that preceded the shelter dog. The you know saving the future shelter dog by saving the puppy. Now it seems like maybe this week we're talking about Saving a shelter dog by yes. saving the actual shelter dog. Yes, shelter. You know, I don't want people to think that we're anti-shelter dog just because we talk so much about puppies and mm-hmm. getting a puppy. Um, but as we did point out in the last podcast episode, um, all shelter dogs were puppies. They came from somewhere. They did not drop from the sky as you know, right. adolescent homeless dogs or sad adult dogs just so I guess abandoned. We're saying in a, in a perfect world, you know, the best case scenario would be that every puppy would be raised um, from the very beginning with uh, positive fun and games reward training that showed them how to live in a you know adult human world. Proactive training. Right, proactive training from the very beginning. Um, but of course, this being the real world, that doesn't happen. And as it is now, there are you know hundreds of shelters across the country filled to capacity Thousands. with dogs. And so the question is, given the real world circumstances we find ourselves in, what what can we do about that? Yes, yes, that is kind of the question. Yeah, and I, I would follow through the same train of thought that I, I think we have to change the attitude of prospective puppy buyers so they know they have a choice, um, irrelevant of breed of breeding. Um, we need to change breeders so breeders do start the socialization and training process very early on, neonatally. Um, and I would carry through that that, that frame of thinking to the shelter, that sheltering a puppy is not sufficient. And this is the the point that you made with Open Paw. When you look at rules and regulations for keeping animals, there's loads of them in terms of the animal's physical health and and medical rules, for example. Like the the temperature they're kept at? Temperature, size of the cage. Cleanliness protocols. Physical, measurable. But there is absolutely nothing about care or maintenance of the animal's mental health. That's mandated. That's mandated. Mm -hmm. With the exception of Open Paws minimal mental health guidelines for kenneled animals, adults and puppies. Previous to that, there, there was nothing. And this is where I think the whole notion of sheltering needs to change. It, it's very easy from a, an emotional viewpoint to say, we want to have no-kill shelters. But when you have far too many dogs and not enough homes for them, and these may be dogs with behavioral baggage, or they're dogs which are okay dogs, there's just not enough people for them. Or they're the wrong breed. Or the wrong breed. Uh, someone gets stuck with the euthanasia process in, in any community. And so I guess my view, our view about shelters is, I think a shelter should be an educational organization 
And the thing that I love about the Open Paw program is two things. One, how it takes the complexity of training a dog and simplifies it into four steps, where the first step, Open Paw Level 1 training, is brilliant. Classical conditioning, all and unreward training. Two of the most effective training tools and there simple are, to an And it's simple, and it means you can take a volunteer and have them training, working with dogs safely within 30 minutes. Um, but what I really loved about Open Paw was how we used to think of, we want to get a volunteer base to get this done, that that's essential. A shelter can't run on limited funds with only a few employees. The volunteer base is huge. And, and when we started... The impact of the volunteer base is huge. Oh, the it's, volunteer it's base itself does not have to be huge in order for this to work. I want to make that a little clear to people, that you don't need hundreds of volunteers no, to no. make the program half work. a dozen makes yeah. a program. And, and when we started, the notion was, oh, what wonderful volunteers, they're volunteering their time, they're doing this good stuff for the sheltered animals, and, and they're training them, and they are making them more adoptable, because a lot of them did have behavioural baggage, whether as simple as jumping and barking, or chewing, or being fearful, of course, is a huge one. Um, Openport changed that immediately by saying, we can't kennel an animal in an area that makes this behavioural baggage worse. For example, he can't be locked in a cage, so he is taught by confinement to soil his living sleeping area. Mm -hmm. So he needs to be walked to eliminate and praise for doing so. But, but the lovely switcheroo was, at the end of this, it was the training of the dog that was actually the teacher. The, the, train, the process of rehabilitating the dog taught these volunteers, it gave the volunteers an education well, to me, in behaviour and training. I always call that the, the dogs getting trained and um, getting socialised the beautiful side effect of, a, of the community education program. Mm -hmm. you know, they, you know, that really you're educating the people, volunteers. And, and the community. You know, I mean, most shelters do not adhere to the standards that they require for adoption. You know, so if you go into most shelters, you have to fill out a, an application, mm -hmm. and they'll ask you questions about how you'll raise the animal, where you'll keep them, and mm -hmm. um, you know if you plan to be you know responsible in certain ways, and most shelters aren't aren't even modeling that for the public. Right. You know they they're expecting more, and I think that's a shame, and it really doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't take um, millions of dollars, you know, a million dollar budget and a fancy facility to make sure that the animals are getting the kind of interaction and attention that they need. Um, you could do this in a, in a shack, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and um, quite often it is done. Quite often we do do it in shacks. In, we've gone all over the world now. Yeah. We've, we've uh, taught open pot in South Africa, in Australia, mm -hmm. in um, places all over the U.S., although less so in the U.S. Did you know, I think I told you this already, Ian, you might not know this, Jamie, that the um, the state, is, are they called states in Australia? Mm -hmm. The state of uh, New South Wales, Australia, the RSPCA has mandated open paw for all of their facilities. Wow, that's brilliant. Across the state. Yeah. Uh, Australia is actually leading the way right now um, due to what the wonderful Sandy Lack. Uh, she's you know, really spearheaded the open paw program in Australia and made it very strong. So, um, But the point is, it can be done anywhere in, in any environment on a shoestring budget. And it's, it's a paradigm shift for um, where you focus your priorities in care. Of course the animals need to be kept clean and healthy. I, no one would argue that, 
but in most shelters, if you are actually letting the dogs out for potty breaks regularly, when they, so they're not forced to soil in their kennels, you then don't need to clean the kennels. You know, the kennels aren't, aren't so sanitary you risks. I personally yeah. would much rather walk Train a dog, dog out right? to have it poop outside yeah. than to pick its poop. Yes. Well, and that is the irony. Most people who work in shelters, it is not an easy job. Most people who work in shelters love animals and would like to spend time with them. And instead they become glorified janitors. And, and cleaners, poop cleaners. Right. And, 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 and the beauty of a house training program in a shelter is you only need the volunteer for, say, 10 to 15 minutes on their way to work, in their lunch hour, coming home from work, and late in the evening, four times when the dogs get their potty breaks. So it's very easy for a volunteer to say, oh, I'll drop by the shelter today, and I'm going to take five dogs out, let them go pee and poop, and give them three liver treats. So now we can, we can actually say, this is a house-trained dog, because on the kennel cage, they have little stickers. If the cage is clean today, you get a green sticker. If they peed in it, you have a yellow one. If they pooped in it, you get a brown one. So at a glance, the shelter worker can say, well, this dog hasn't soiled his cage for Or anyone weeks. looking at it. He's house trained. Yeah. I mean, right. it, it, it's a great way to monitor the dog's health and, and progress in training. It's a great way for volunteers to feel super um, useful you know, mm -hmm. and productive when they go to the shelter. Maybe they don't have a lot of time. In, in a half an hour, you can walk five or six dogs out for their potty breaks. And while you're doing potty breaks, you are socializing them, you're getting them out for sniffs. You know, I mean, these aren't, these aren't long hikes in the woods. This is just, you know, a toilet area that's probably within less than a block, you know, away from the kennel. But, um, you know, it's interaction. It's daily interaction with several different people. So the dogs are being handled every day by these new, these different people that come and put on the leash or put on this special harness or gentle leader, have to handle them to do that, have to get them out of the kennel. They get to see how animals, these dogs react to other people they pass by on the street and to different types of handlers and they get the chance to pee and poop outside and most shelter animals if they know from the day one that when they when they you know get to the shelter that they're going to have an opportunity to re relieve themselves outside of their living space most of them will wait mm -hmm. obviously some can't if their puppies are sick um, but most of them will wait they unfortunately in most shelters learn to soil their kennel because they're not given any other option. I mean, how terrible if they did wait yeah. Yeah. I mean, How terrible if it's a house-trained dog coming in, well, after three days you can confined to your kennel, you've now been trained to soil it, making it now not just an adult dog with a new house-soiling problem, but one that's more difficult to resolve. Well, not to mention that's just so stressful. I mean, I always think of, like, my Ollie in, oh, in particular. Ollie. He was such a clean, dog. If he thought he had to pee inside, he would have committed Harry Curry. You know, it's just the stress level of an animal that is clean. Yeah. I mean, imagine yourself. I, I like to use that analogy with people. Imagine if you um, find yourself trapped in an elevator. Mm -hmm. And you have to pee. Oh, don't, please. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you think, what, what next, Kelly? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you think, you right. think, how long, I mean, you know, how right. long am I going to be in here is the first thought. Oh, you know, hopefully I'll get out soon. Mm -hmm. or, right, or, we would all wait several hours, but eventually. And, and be uncomfortable. Eventually and you'd have to go. Yeah. And that's just demoralizing. And then you're now in the elevator with the pee. Right. And, you know, it just kind of deteriorates yeah, No there. one wants to adapt you. I, I think we should let people know, that, I mean, if, if you want to look at the Open Paws minimal health requirements, um, they are at uh, openpaw.org, is that correct? Yeah. And I just had a great idea that um, going back when we, you know, we, we started at Open Paw and, and, and looking at the responses to shelters when we suggested they have the program up and running to 
uh, resolve the animal's behavioral baggage, make them more adoptable, to make them happier and less stressful, etc., etc. Um, the criticisms were not enough time, not enough money. And I thought of a great way where shelters could start an open port program and make a lot of money. That if someone wants to become a dog trainer and they go to a dog trainer school, basically they're going to shelve out between five and twenty thousand dollars. And in the course, they will probably work with half a dozen dogs. I mean, in most courses, that's it. In some courses, you only work with one dog. In other courses, with three dogs. Mm -hmm. um, why don't shelters say, we're setting up an open port program, and you can pay to work here? Mm -hmm. Because, you see, what the volunteers get is this education. And so now, the Humane Society not only becomes um, an educational place, not just for the animals, it's for people. People in the community was the way we looked on it originally. These people on the community then go back to their own dogs and say, oh, I can teach him to shush. I can house train my neighbor's dog. The knowledge goes out in the community, but for people who want to be dog trainers. Where else do you have more dogs that need training than in a shelter? Well, it is an excellent idea that dog trainers get hand, more hands-on uh, experience with all sorts of dogs and all sorts of situations. I think it's more than an excellent idea. I think it's a brilliant idea. You've already talked about this. Yes, I know. It's an excellent idea. <laughs> no, it is an excellent idea. Um, and it is an excellent idea that the shelter volunteers go out into the, their own community and work with their own animals. But more importantly, every person who goes to, into the shelter is now, now the shelter is modeling. You know, I mean, if the dogs have crates in their kennels for house training purposes or for downtime and quiet chew toy time, they have chew toys in their kennels. Their kennels are clean. There's the potty stickers. The chart is on the right in the kennel. People can see this and they ask questions or they, you know, they make, you know, they deduce what's going on and, and they, they can just learn by observation by being in the kennel. Yeah, that is part of the, we call it the shelter culture. That once you've established the shelter culture, any new person coming in, like someone, a prospective adopter, thinks, wow, these people are interesting. They go up to a cage and the dog barked and jumped up, so they stood still. And they refused to go in the cage until the dog was sitting quietly. And so then they learn this and they think, wow, that's unbelievable. And that actually was one of the spookiest things I, I found about the first open poor shelter. A, a barkless kennel. It is the weirdest thing to see dogs. They see someone approaching up the aisles, you know, running, going by the cages, and they sit and go quiet and look at the person. Well, that's going to get you out of there. Bouncing up and down and going, oh, take me, take me, is not going to get you out of there. Mm -hmm. So we're actually giving them skills to help them well, get adopted and to stay adopted. The reward training and uh, classical conditioning and reward training that we do at level one is um, just, just brilliant for that because it teaches the dogs to be pro-social and kind of, you know, quote unquote, to sell themselves, you know, by approaching the, the front of the kennel when they see somebody come and sitting or putting a paw up and looking, you know, looking out. Sad, with sad eyes, soft eyes, or whatever it may be. Um, and this, ultimately, this is also helping all, all those animals that are in shelters that we talked about in our last episode are perfectly good dogs, for the most part, that have bad manners and a few issues. And if, if they're being worked on every day by the many people that are getting them out for their different potty walks, every interaction with an animal is a learning opportunity. So why not proactively make every interaction um, work to make that dog a little bit better and a little bit more adoptable rather than just moving them from point A to B. But additionally, I think they, they have to let um, adopters know 
um, the problems that an animal has. Uh, one of the saddest things I find is when they do the on-the-street adoptions. Uh, we, have, we have a lot of rescue groups in, in the Bay Area and a family walks by and they see a dog and they take it and I think, wow, that dog is so scared, so fearful. The family won't be walking this dog and the family won't be having guests coming to the house. The dog is fearful and the adopters need to have been told that, that this dog is fearful and this is what it requires for the first six months. Um, and, and so I think, you know, the whole point of this is just caging a dog, sheltering it, is not sufficient. That the dog has to be receiving an education. It's it's continuing. It's like open poor you, you used to call it, right? Open poor university. Even if the dog is normal coming in, we mustn't make it worse. We can't dehouse train this dog or, or turn him into a bouncing barking dog because of stress. So education has to continue, even for normal dogs with no baggage. But if they have baggage, two things that the shelter should retrain the dog to make it more adoptable, and then the shelter must let the owner know this little dog's been house-trained for a week, but you know he wasn't house-trained when he came in, so this is what you need to do when you get him home to make sure he comes into your home, because first impressions are important. If the dog pees in the house on the first day, he's going to pee ten more times. He's set the precedent. So you've got to make sure the first week, the first month, this adopted dog is at home, we have all these rules, here's where we pee outside, here's what we chew, we go for lots of walks, we do lots of training. Dog says, hey, I love this new home, better than the other one, where they did nothing with you. So I think that's, that's really important, that the changing the notion of the shelter from these moneyless um, facilities that don't have sufficient number of employees to places which are vibrant, I see Sinsano umbrellas, people drinking coffee and soft drinks, loads and loads of volunteers, and they come there to chat and train a few dogs at the same time. They get this education, and back again, shelters could definitely charge for this. If you want to be a dog trainer, what better than three months working in a shelter, and you have worked with 2,000 dogs. Now I think you could say, you've got a bit of practical, hands-on experience. Right, and a great variety of dogs with a variety of problems. Absolutely. Yeah. different sizes and breeds. Stages. And very quickly you learn, um, as a lot of shelter workers and animal control people learn, what are the dangerous dogs and what's not. Because a lot of people think if a dog goes, <coughs> oh he's dangerous. No, 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 this is the good dog. He reacted but he didn't hurt you. People think a good dog is one that doesn't react. Well, he may be, but you don't know. You don't know until the dog does react. And animal control people learn this really quickly. Oh, I can touch this dog. Yeah, he may be a bit snappy, maybe a bit lungy, but he doesn't do any harm. Whereas this dog, no, he's downright dangerous and he's simply not suitable for adoption because he inflicts, you know, he doesn't bite, he mutilates. So I think a little more common sense can be learned when you have that tremendous experience of working with a couple of thousand dogs. Otherwise, you think you want to rescue and save every dog. And, and the danger of that is, on the surface of course, if you have a dog that's inflicting gross amounts of damage, um, that's not a suitable dog really to adopt out. It's the damage it's going to do to the trainer. They're going to fail with that dog. And, and when you have failures, I think, in the sheltering world, and the dog training world, they really hurt. Right, whether you, it's the trainer or the institution or the family. When yeah, you take on a dog and you're really you trying to trainer, help. you the trainer, you mean the family. I mean, it, whatever, a trainer working with the dog, a family working with the dog, a shelter working with the dog. When we have a failure, 
it really hurts us. It rips our doggy soul out. Because when you're working with a dog, you, you bond with it. It becomes part of you. And so it's very important right at the beginning to work out what are the dogs where we can get rid of their behavioral baggage, build up their confidence, give them some manners, and get them out there and rehomed quickly. What are the dogs where we could spend months doing this and, and there's no guarantee so I think this experience is, is really important that well, the shelters can offer. And even the ones that can be easily that are easily workable, they need somebody to do it. And if they have been abandoned to a shelter, let's say because it's a large breed dog that is super strong and un, uh, unmanageable on leash and barky and lungy, and you know maybe these people had a backyard dog and never really did anything with it, and then because they're not bonded with it or you know, whatever it is, for whatever reason, they, they end up surrendering that dog. That's a dog in a shelter now. Let's say it's a 100-pound dog. It's friendly enough, but it, nobody can walk him. You know, um, maybe he barks and lunges at other dogs. Um, that's unappealing to most adopters, and it's a lot to ask them to, to take on. You know, they, they may pass up that dog when they go to the shelter. When they, because usually meet and greet is done out on leash. And it's probably the case that most families shouldn't take that dog home. If the, I mean, like, most families don't know how to train, you know, an impressionable little puppy, let alone a adult dog or an adolescent dog that's already developing some, you know, problems. Yes, and it's a totally workable problem, but it's something that Given is, the right know-how. So, and it's also time-consuming, and so you're asking a, a new adopter to come in and, first of all, find this dog appealing enough to want to take home. You know, these meet-and-greets are done on, on leash and in the streets and, on, you know, and in park areas and, you know, uh, shelter park areas, you know, outdoor areas. And they'll see that this dog is, is like this, and that will intimidate them. So that A, they might not choose the dog, but if they don't see it in advance, or, you know, or they decide they can try that, now you're asking, uh, in most cases, a novice person who just wanted to get a dog, a companion to hang out with, probably to go on walks and go to the park, and now you've asked them to take out a, a project. And even if it's just a six-month project, this is something that you know, it's going to require training and skill, and um, I think that should be done. In, in the shelter, it should be done every day in the shelter before they go into a new home so that the owners aren't set up for, for failure in that sense. You know, who, you know, yes, this work can be done, but the question is if the dog doesn't have a dedicated owner who's already bonded, who will do this, who will do this training? Yeah. Who will follow this protocol? And educated. And I think that not only do dogs need to be worked with in the shelter, just on humane grounds, that they, they need company, they need mental stimulation, mental stimulation training. Manners. But after adoption, um, the, the new family needs help. They are not dog trainers. And this is where this volunteer base is so cool. The, the, the follow-up, let's come back once a week. And now you've got a whole bunch of educated volunteers who've had hundreds, maybe thousands of dogs' experience under their belt to help adopters of dogs because it, I mean I, I think back to when we got Claude and we we meant to be two doggy you know uh, like professionals and we got duped man we got duped we thought we were rescuing this dog that was going to be euthanized and he was no. kind of dorky and, well, we, and we fell in love he was, with we his fell, oh, we fell in love with his him. looks you in, know? his looks but he was he, dorky we knew better but we, we did. walked him Obviously on the route where they walked him and he was fantastic. So we thought, yes, we must take and, him for a walk to see how he is in public. Yeah. And we go on and he was brilliant on the walk. And then it was driving across the Bay Bridge. He went berserk, didn't he? We were in your truck, I remember. He and, panicked a bit. And, and he'd just bitten me at the shelter because that, that was his problem. We wanted to check that the bikes weren't serious. So he'd bitten me four times and he's going berserk in the back of the truck and Kelly's driving. So she says, oh, comfort him. 
So I put my hand through the window, and whoom, he comes through, he's and his head here, through. and he's going, oh, 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 and we thought, what's this? Then in the evening, Kelly had to go out training, and I'm left with Claude. Oh, we also checked that he was crate trained, remember? Yes. The shelter. So that we knew he would go into a crate, uh -huh. and then he could rewalk down leash. Oh, destroyed the crate so quick. We had a nice collapsible crate. Well, it wouldn't go away. We did get him in once, and he came out so fast you can't believe it. It was one of these collapsible fabric crates that I actually got for free. It was really nice, and that was that destroyed. It wasn't his first crate. But then, first in the evening, he just—it was like Jekyll and Hyde. He—he he obviously fell in love with Kelly in an instant. He's left at home with me, and he screamed all evening. Screamed, paced, screamed. I had him at the bottom of the stairs there. In the end, I remember I, I started to write a poem. And it was about, what did they call him? Big Ben was his name. And I wrote this poem about schizophrenic Claude. And it's like, Big Ben was calm. Big Ben was wonderful. Big Ben walked nicely on leash. But Claude yowled and growled and he did this and he did that. And I never finished the poem because by the time Kelly came home, I was exhausted. So was, and now we had this project for 10 years. Of course now, is lovely. He is paying back to me well, in trumps you, now. What was your point with that whole story? That, that we, we didn't, didn't know. We were experts. And we told didn't know. Front. We, you know. Well, I also think no, like, but I think contextually things are different too. You know? Yes. Yeah. You know, so that, I mean, we did walk him, but we walked him where they'd been training him. Yeah, that, that's where that test drive is so important. Yeah. A lot of shelters are against it, but I would have in the adoption process. You know, take him for a week and try it out because he'll be very different when you get him home. But a lot of shelters say, no, 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 that's too stressful. We don't want to do that. But I think too it's stressful really for who? The dog. The dog. Mm -hmm. And I think The idea that it's not a commitment that somebody can come yeah. in. I mean, I do understand. They don't want to formally be like, yeah, just take him for a while and then bring him back if you want. You know, mm -hmm. of course, most places do have re return policies. Yes. Yeah. But my view is, if I were the dog, I would say, wow, at least I get a week in comfort, even if they return me because yeah, I'm crazy. Certain ones can't but, bounce from place to place no. without becoming stressed. It's true. Anyway, that, that aside, the, you know, the, it, the more training that they're getting with more people and on different routes, the better. I mean, at this place where he came from, they had very specific trainers handling him. They were the same people every day mm -hmm. and, you know, doing the same kind of protocols. Whereas if you are doing this with a volunteer base, you know, maybe they're not getting the same exact high-level training, but they're getting pretty close and they're getting used to more people who maybe don't know the trainer's route and they're going to new yeah. places. And, and it's, a more, it's a broader education. And it's so much easier you're going to locate whether the dog, say, doesn't like men or doesn't like children because the volunteers are women, men and children. So I think, you know, we need education in the shelter, that sheltering's not enough, that the dog needs its comfort, entertainment, companionship and education, and it needs to continue after the dog is adopted. This, this is when the, the people need backup. And that's where the volunteers are just absolutely invaluable. And I would say we can use the same advice here as we would with breeders. You know, people should look at shelters and adopt from shelters and volunteer at shelters where they're supporting proactive programs to keep the animals trained and socialized. Absolutely. Uh, and if they're not doing anything or not doing enough, they should um, ask them, you know, what, what they're doing or have they heard about open paw or other you know other programs and um, push your community to be proactively you know working on, on improving their shelter conditions yeah I, I, i'm sort of reminded that i grew up on a farm and, and thinking of my grandfather we did have livestock and you know when they were babies no matter what they were whether they were chickens or cows um, they were trained to be well socialized around people 
and, and, and that was when the work was done. And I thought, wow, you know, I mean, considering my grandpa left school when he was 12, I mean, that was pretty cool. And we're not doing that with dogs, and, and we're not following through. So, you know, the theme is we've got to educate puppies to prevent them getting to shelters. If they get into shelters, we've got to educate them there to keep them educated if they were educated. If they're not and they have behavioural baggage, we've got to resolve it. And then we've got to follow through with the adopters saying, you may have a bit of a project with this dog, but, you know, he's worth it. And, and it really is. Back and here's to Claude. what we do. Right. I mean, well, back to Claude. We have resources that can help yeah. you. If yeah. You, yeah. you know, need to come back and need more advice. I mean, back to... Claude, I mean, the joy is, is now. Like, here he is, um, he's, he's definitely in his sunset year or years or what have you. I mean, the joy he gives back now on his walks, he's just, he knows it. He knows the routine. He knows what Kelly's doing to the minute. He knows mm -hmm. when to change from downstairs to upstairs. And it, it, it's, he's an old dog and he gets to, you know, live it out here and, and giving me a lot of good sort of, a lot of nice relaxing time and walking. So, well, I think our time is up on this one. Sure is. So, Indeed. Yeah. All Thanks right. for listening, folks. Check We're out openpaw.org. Openpaw.org. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.